Welcome to DevOps Sauna. My name is Lauri and I am the Chief Marketing Officer of Efficode. You are listening to the second episode of the discussion between Sami Pippuri, CTO of Mass Global, a company behind WIM, and Efficode's CTO Marco Clemetti. WIM wants to offer a digital alternative to owning a car and we had a unique opportunity to get to talk to Sami about technological and cultural aspects of building successful digital services. The first episode before this one focused on technology choices, user experience and DevOps as a culture. This second episode you're listening to now focuses on aspects such as organizing and scaling up the teams and building the commercial model for the services. Let's get going. Can you tell me where do you currently operate? Because that, of course, I, I presume has its challenges when you do a service like that. Uh, we are live in uh, the Helsinki region, or yeah. well, southern Finland, I should say, because we just added Turku a while ago, um, and uh, then um, Vienna, Austria, Benelux region, in the basically between between Belgium and, and Holland, we have services, as well as uh, trialing in uh, in the UK, in the Birmingham region, as well as uh, uh, in a suburb of Tokyo called Kashiwanoha. Yeah. So. So those are the those are the main ones currently, but obviously uh, we want to want to be a global player, and uh, we just announced a few few uh, weeks back that uh, there's uh, some developments going on in London, for example. Uh, being present in UK uh, in, in Birmingham is a good start, but obviously London is is the place where you want to be. But uh, yeah. it's also a very ruthless market, so so you can only launch there once. We want to make sure that that, that the service is uh, up to scratch. Yeah, it's you know when I think of like for example Unity, which is the game development engine and the organization behind it, what they've been doing is an engine that you can then transform your games into several platforms, and in a way, to me, Wim reminds me of of the similar similar way of of creating services but when you go to new areas like vienna or london uh can you use the same technologies or do you have to change them a lot to match the match the targeted areas well wim was designed to be extensible in this way from the get-go and i think that goes also to the extensibility of the team um, perhaps that kind of the uh, segue to the scaling topic but, yeah, uh, yeah yeah definitely um uh we did we did design the whole architecture to be basically that there's a there's a core of the service which has the kind of the core business logic and you know, pricing rules and and this kind of things uh user information all this all this kind of very sensitive uh stuff and then then there is a completely separate um serverless project physically but uh you know so completely separate stage where where all those integrations live and the point about this was that uh, uh, while it might be uh, somewhat difficult to scale the team around the core services because they're all so tightly connected and uh, you know you kind of have to be have to be aware of all the kind of design decisions etc but then there's very strongly defined schemas how that core uh, communicates with the rest of the world and uh, uh, it does this by uh, via the the integration stage, and uh, this integration stage is much much more strictly defined. And uh, so there's kind of a sandbox w- w- where all the 
all the integrations work as a kind of a translator between the internal schemas and the outside world. And this mm. stage was designed to be uh, very extensible, uh, both technically as well as uh, as well as from from personnel point of view, uh, because the integrations happen all over the world. It does not make sense to centralize everything in Helsinki. It makes sense to to uh, hire uh, people with the local knowledge, local yeah. language, and so forth, because transportation tends to be quite local. Uh, a lot of the transport operators they operate on the in the local language and so forth. So you need local support. Uh, so it has to be relatively simple, relatively quick to get going uh, to onboard new people, and uh, that's how we designed it. So going to some place like Vienna, it's a matter of uh, finding the necessary services, contracting the necessary services, and then uh, working on the integration in the in, in the specific stage of of uh, this building this translator basically between the providers and, and our schemas and uh, obviously that's not all going into a new market new language etc so you have to do localization you have to figure out what kind of packages make sense and so forth but uh, technically speaking the, the bulk of the work is in this uh, integration layer and then the rest of it is more like fine-tuning for the market so this you know, seems like a validation of the of the design per se that uh, being able to relatively quickly and easily get to new markets um, going to new markets obviously with uh, with a base scenario is always faster than building something bespoke or or very optimized for the market but you kind of need to get the learnings first like how do people actually commute and how do people use services in order yeah. to then maybe build the next layer uh, which is to promise people uh, a kind of a subscription plan so yeah yeah sounds sounds awesome uh you've scaled up the team and that's that's definitely interesting i you've grown from the the one person plus the founders into 80 people which is which is well to say the least insane and it might it might easily go wrong and many organizations have gone wrong so what was your way of scaling up the team and still being able to develop and release the application in an organized manner yeah to add to the insanity the 80 people was in the technical side mm. of things so so uh so I think the company itself is around 120 uh, plus. Uh, wow. Uh, bulk of so the bulk of bulk of uh, the personnel was on the on the technology side uh, with different kind of peripherals, of course. Uh, obviously, there's growing pains. Uh, so you know, I would be lying if that was not the case. So, you know, especially when it, at times of uh, of the rapid growth, a couple of years ago. Uh, there was maybe not a not a day that goes by when when people are wondering that okay why why are we not delivering more? I wish there was some kind of a some kind of a silver bullet to say okay this is how you do it. But uh, in the end, I think most organizations probably bump into similar things. Uh, but there's always kind of nuances. So so in our case, the maybe the one of the problems was that uh, we were not on top of the full stack of of uh, services that as in because we were basically selling through uh, what our partners had to offer yeah. so the weakest link in the in the chain 
was what the kind of uh, we had to work with and typically that was working with legacy systems you know some some work with uh with basically uh xml over sockets and uh, uh you know taxi ordering systems most likely developed with visual basic and yeah and, and so forth so um technically uh, kind of the the building the error resiliency uh, for these kind of services was was very difficult and uh, uh, say if your service depends on a public transit operator that uh, has monopoly in a, in an area there is not much you can do if that that service fails um, uh, and uh, then on the on the process side of things um, obviously we, when we when we grow quickly then then we do introduce uh, you know different kinds of inertia in the in the team you know we have people who are still learning maybe making mistakes while we are under pressure to deliver something and uh, um, uh, maybe some uh, creating technical depth very quickly because we're under pressure and so forth those are very classical things yeah um, how managing that uh, I can always think of ways how things could have been could have gone better but uh, I think overall it's you know nobody else being able to do it better either so yeah so i need to need to be happy about what what has been achieved there but uh yeah my i guess my question would be more of did you decide to go for self-organized teams or how did you do you did you have functional teams or do you still have functional teams like based on certain areas of integration or ux or similar or or more like multidisciplinary yeah so we we had functional teams maybe a bit too long Maybe that's one of the one of the things that I would like to go back and uh, change a bit earlier. So uh, it just you know in the middle of the rapid growth you kind of uh, forget to think about these things yeah. a little bit. Yeah, for sure. But uh, um, so yeah, we had functional teams quite a long time. Um, now in the past year we've been basically moving into a more of a more of a, a feature team type of a type of a scrum team approach, uh, which has it's has not come easy either as a as a change, but uh, I think overall uh, that just that is what I believe in as a as a team of this size that there has to be this kind of a Amazon style two pizza teams that uh, that uh, have a very strong product ownership and uh, and are empowered within their within their scope, uh, but also have a have a responsibility to deliver. So uh, having a more integrated product slash dev um, team that is uh, small enough to to uh, to not have friction, I think that's that's really the way to go. And I wish I I would have made the change earlier, but uh, but now I think that that's proven to be the model that uh, how this thing works. Yeah, and on, on the other hand, to me it seems like like the development never choked in it, which means that it hasn't been too late either. And and I also feel that in many organizations the move is always painful. It always takes some time. It always takes more resources than you would have had just stay, staying the same. So it's it's yeah. Of course, the problem is that you have you have in your team, it's, a, it's to do with the actual individuals, even though it's very easy to look at things on paper that here's, you know, here's a beautiful chart, how we will deal uh, with all kinds of, you know, scalability issues. But uh, in the end, it comes down to the people that you have. And uh, 
you have sort of old timers who've been there from the get-go and know exactly how things work. And those are such a valuable asset. Uh, but then, then you have newcomers who, you know, are just learning about things and they, they haven't even, you know, seen serverless before maybe and so forth. So, yeah. so, you know, there's, even though they are great developers, but it just takes them time to, to uh, get up to speed. And then, you know, you figure out, okay, you have, you have maybe you know three or four uh, say backend developers with the required skills and then you have five or six different teams where you need such a skill then what do you do <laughs> um, so you really have to pick your battles and uh, um, also try to not overstretch your people so yeah. yeah it's just very tough in in making making those priority decisions yeah can i ask what's your like geographical division between the developers and, and even nationalities. So have you preferred having one location, one nationality type of, or have you decided going, you, you already said about uh, having the local knowledge in different sites you operate in, how does that work in, in the team selection? Um, so my philosophy, maybe because of my background has always been that uh, uh, I don't really care about people's nationalities or language as long as they speak English. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I started out hiring uh, people from, uh, well, for my first hire was not even graduated back then. And uh, um, but because I had the benefit of actually using a, a company specialized on serverless back in the day. So so I had experience in-house uh, or uh, not on payroll yet. So I was able to build up the, the in-house experience, meanwhile, working with uh, outside help. Um, and uh, so I started hiring uh, a little bit across the board, but actually my first Finnish speaking engineer, I think joined two years in. Oh, wow. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I guess because after working 10 plus years in a, in a multinational yeah. environment. Uh, I just, you know, saw that I, why would I limit my choices to like, say perhaps less than 50% of the market in terms of developers in, in even in here in, in Finland. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the early stage, we were of course, um, a team that mostly fit into one room here in Helsinki, but, uh, especially when building this architecture to be scalable and with the integrations it was a choice early on that the integrations should actually live outside the bubble here in Helsinki. So, so, um, started working with the first, uh, few companies and then freelancers in different, uh, different regions. So, you know, outsourcing, uh, essentially to Poland, et cetera, but, uh, also in German speaking market in Japan, et cetera. So that was, that was the scalability bit. Um, there on the core side, I think most of the developers do work in Helsinki over time. We have expanded a little bit and there's kind of a, kind of a learning ramp. So, uh, since the technology in the back end is the same essentially for the core, as well as the integrations, then the more experienced integrations guys as a, as a kind of a additional appetite, uh, maybe in getting more into involved into the core development, uh, which is of course more challenging, but also more, more maybe rewarding, yeah. uh, on the client side, maybe we've been a little bit more spread out. Uh, so, uh, using, using, uh, resources in Helsinki, but also 
freelance resources that uh, that uh, were maybe familiar to me earlier or have come up as a as as people move around. So so overall, I think most of the work gets done remotely. Or even though people might be sitting in the same office, they still slack around and uh, and etc. So the say the the current situation with COVID um, maybe has not really changed much much in the way how the how the team was already operating certainly people can't meet up for uh, a coding session etc so we've been using some tools for for those like tuple etc for yeah. for pair, pair programming and uh, and uh, visual studio code live live extension oh yeah so, so yeah that's actually interesting addition uh because as said it's been Many of the organizations who already have the so-called agile and DevOps practices in place and, and use modern technologies like managed services or serverless have not seen much loss in the speed of deliveries, but it's more of maintaining the culture and collaboration between developers and, and VS Code Live definitely is, is really interesting. Um, last, I would like to talk a bit about the commercial side because of course building these services building them the way you have done is is not free and it does not come free and it needs knowledge so my like approaching the topic i would first ask how have you built the commercial model of wim if i may ask there's kind of two ways how you can build transit uh, solutions so there's one way uh, which is maybe the kind of the google way where you focus on curating information etc and your aim is to attract as many eyeballs as possible to monetize them in you know, different ways yeah. from typically ad advertising, et cetera. So if you're, uh, it's, there's this saying about if, uh, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Uh, and uh, our way was always that, uh, that we want to make it a, a, a product where the customer actually pays for the service. Uh, which is natural in transportation because people are not uh, questioning the fact that whether they should pay for a bus or a taxi. They, you know, it's a it's an existing business. That brings us to the sort of the pay as you go tier of the service, which is typically just you know uh, very simple. Uh, here's here's a service and it has a price tag and uh, you can you can click and buy and that's it. You're not charged any extra. You you just uh, just uh, using the the service to to uh, get on board a bus or bike or whichever, um, but maybe the unique aspect of of when that it's known for and why it's known for as a as a Netflix of transportation is the is the subscription tier, and uh, that's what made Sampohjärven and famous in in the transport uh, environment and and uh, already back in the days when I was was joining the team. Uh, he was uh, on on the media uh, saying how he wants to give uh, everybody uh, free taxi rides with 100, uh, well, not free, but taxi rides for everybody for 100 euros a month. Those kind of bold claims are are why we were able to get the kind of the exposure. Uh, it's because there's a lot of lot of different companies aggregating services and trying to live off on on a you know one percent commission or something from a from a ticket, uh, but uh, the point was that if you if you start to aggregate a lot of people, a lot of traffic, then you start to be able to optimize your your uh, 
own system as well as the transit system as a whole yeah. and uh, uh, move the investment that people make uh, for owning private vehicles which is you know you have a car loan you have a leasing car or something like that you you're spending 300 to 600 euros a month uh, on that uh, so instead of that uh, sunk cost that people are making for the physical asset move that investment into using services and by that then you're able to move from uh, the current say 50 to 100 euro price point that people pay for public transport to maybe more of a 200 euros 300 euros uh, price point for replacing a car uh, so there the, the subscription is such an important thing that uh, uh, where you can guarantee people that you know exactly what your cost is going to be um, one one month by one month and you can opt out when you want um, that has been maybe the guiding light of uh, of our being and uh, the reason why yeah, we've made the kind of the, the headlines that we have yeah, and I also feel like if we look at many of the success stories, such as PayPal, they 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 did did similar operations in the beginning the same way. So that you kind of at first provide credits for the ones who who become your users, and then start optimizing that system. Definitely sounds interesting. Maybe from the commercial point of view, um, when you started and you started scaling up. How did you, how did you first of all have bravery into building a service in the beginning already that was aiming into a big success? Was it supported by some e evidence from the media or some or similar, or did you just go all in already from the beginning? Um, at the time uh, we started this, or when I joined, uh, Sampo had already spent almost a decade. Uh, in, in talking about the concept in different kinds of uh, environments. And uh, so there was a clear resounding uh, backing for it that, okay, now it's time to really try this out. And uh, we believe that this is the future and, and we want to be building the, the next generation of, of a product. So we did start with uh, quite a lot of ambition in the, uh, and belief that this is becoming a thing. Uh, with, thought back in the days that uh, we probably have to do a lot of uh, education uh, educating uh, that okay what is it and why but uh, seems like the market was actually uh, coming to us faster than than we thought uh, perhaps even too fast because the kind of the appetite was was growing <laughs> maybe faster than we were able to meet it but uh, but i'll take it that way rather than than having to you know you know talk to a vacuum that you know there's there's nothing nothing coming back so um, so uh, we did start maybe uh, for an for an MVP. Uh, I mean, we could have done maybe faster an MVP, but then then we did start to already build the product with the vision that that this will be a continuum that we are taking this to scale, and uh, that's probably a reason why why I thought that serverless would also be a good yeah. good uh, technology for this because of uh, uh, both technical scalability, but also as a growing company, when you want to attract talent, uh, senior talent, uh, you need to present people with a uh, with a challenge that they that they can learn on the job, and uh, use use bleeding or well maybe not bleeding edge but new technologies. So, so that's why I thought that it's a good choice for this kind of a kind of a uh, task as well. 
Yeah, thank you. As a continuing question to that, um, did you see any points in time where, say, a marketing effort or similar brought you so many new customers or or new users that, that you saw very tangibly that the technological selections you had done were paying off because of the capability, say, for serverless, for example? Or how did you manage all of these like rapid growth points? In terms of marketing activities, uh, uh, there's a lot of lot of nice learnings in, in this, and one of them was that uh, maybe first off we we started with the digital marketing and sort of uh, online, thinking that okay, this is these are modern modern users, and uh, they, we reach them through digital channels. Uh, well, it turns out the learnings uh, has had been that the digital channels did not really work that well uh, in acquiring people who are, who are uh, buying transportation services. So actually, our marketing team realized that uh, that you know somewhat somewhat uh, strangely that uh, that people actually resonated better to physical advertising, yeah. like actual like bulletin boards next to the bus bus stops, etc. You know to be present in where people are moving on a daily basis. That was a you know incredible realization. Um, so we went went more more sort of a you know billboard style. Uh, over time, we have diversified from that. So now there's a mix of of both. So if there's a marketing campaign digitally, it might be might be to do with uh, sort of say display advertising, but uh, more and more sort of engagement type of advertising or, or promotions that uh, there's a lot of people who have downloaded WIM and they might not be active at the moment. So that's a nice asset to have uh, as, a, as a targeting, yeah. um, which kind of leads to one one interesting story that uh, our, our um, marketing team sent out a, a push uh, message to inactive users, giving them some credit in the application, um, unfortunately, that that push message included a a deep link into the application uh, that uh, went into a view that was not using any kind of a cache or any any sort of a, a you know pre-built type of an offering. So it was fully dynamic, and uh, seems like the campaign was very effective. A lot of people clicked on the on the uh, message and opened that uh, view which then uh, hit our database directly and uh, as well as uh, a SaaS service that we use to price things and uh, so two things happened i think that uh, since we we're using rds uh, that yeah. was before the, before rds proxy existed uh, we had suddenly i can't recall how many lambdas hitting the hitting the the uh, database in parallel and uh, the, the database ran out of connections on one occasion. And, and once that was up again, I think it ran out of memory. Um, and uh, then then secondly, this, this SaaS service we we're using ran out of uh, API quota. Uh, so our system was down essentially for, for these people. So the marketing campaign was highly you know, successful in engaging people, but the end results were maybe not so good. Uh, because we we had not experienced this kind of thing before, so a huge traffic spike uh, into a kind of a no, less than optimized part of the system. Yeah, honestly, I I, I have to say that every company has have to have a similar experience at some point. It seems like it's mandatory, and it's only the extent of the damage that's then controlled by well, oftentimes luck, 
in, instead of instead of preparation because there are always times where some when something like this happens in the most unexpected times i've been like i of course have first seen wim as you said in billboards on a bus stop myself a few years back and and that kind of for me verifies what you said because then of course it's it's where you bump into the services where you actually need it and that that was intelligent in my in, in my point of view what's next for wim or or okay. mass global for that matter well uh now now the service i think is uh, is entering this phase where we kind of wanted to be um you know already a while ago but basically going into new regions so, you know there's entry to japan there's entry to central europe wider wider um uk etc um and then then secondly uh Take, taking a step forward in terms of the servicing of the end users. So as a product, there's there's evolution on the sort of the business as well as the, the promise side of things. Um, so something that uh, I'm actually pretty pretty happy about has been has been uh, utilizing more more data and in order to serve the end user better. Uh, that's always been the what what uh, was kind of uh, sought after with WIM in the first place that uh, uh, getting to a point where where um, we can start maybe maybe anticipating things that okay what is likely to happen next how to how to maybe uh, match different kinds of uh, services better to an end user okay this this person likes to use city bike so it's quite likely that they they will pick a city bike if presented the option for this kind of a journey uh, or yeah. or that this person does not want a city bike because they never rented one and, so, and they've rented lots of cars so okay let's look at if if we can provide car options that are are maybe more suitable for for this kind of journey as well as combining things uh, in a in a more high level uh, there's this lat-touted uh, a uh, concept called multimodality, which is where you combine different, say, an e-scooter e with public transport yeah. or taxi with uh, long distance uh, rail and so forth. And uh, we tried that out already from very early stage and it did not really work as expected because it's a very hard problem to solve, trying to match different kinds of availabilities and, and schedules seamlessly together. It's not an easy, easy task, but one by one we can start introducing those kind of things and uh, especially with micro mobility connecting to the next sort of a transit hub in a seamless fashion i think those are kind of the, the next things to look at from from the product point of view yeah. as well as maybe some and you you will see some of these these refresh elements in the in, in the application itself there's been a lots of iteration on the design front and uh, there are some very nice uh, new designs that have been have been there for a long time already and now we're kind of rolling them out in into the application itself uh, screen by screen so there you will see a lot of evolution on that nice. so, sounds interesting is there something we haven't discussed that you would like to say we've touched it probably but uh, looking at looking at um, uh, how your team process as well as technology uh, comes together. I think that's that's a very interesting topic for myself. Uh, 
having having spent maybe the last year looking at this that how do we how do we uh, maybe make some minor adjustments changes on where does work happen and and uh, by whom um, and uh, so moving from this very core centric uh, one location kind of a centric model into maybe a little bit more spread out uh, maybe maybe uh, even vendor wise a little bit more spread out kind of an operation um, that's basically what i've been what i've been doing in the past year or so because of course times are maybe maybe a little bit different right now but once once things you know start to get back on track uh, i think by fall we are going to be back into the into the uh, time frame when uh, it's very hard to do uh, to find uh, people to do stuff so you you kind of have to take a broader view in in where can you find people and there you need to be quite flexible in using using say very skilled uh, externals for doing certain things, uh, say defining a, an architecture or defining your data pipeline uh, that you can then then start building um, with maybe you know, your own or less experienced people. How do you how do you plan transitions from or bringing in new people? Uh, how do you plan things like uh, say taking a dedicated team from a remote location to take over certain certain elements of the of the uh, operation and uh, so that's kind of how i how i became so enthused about this this topic about scaling uh, which scaling can mean up or down and uh, sometimes you need to make adjustments to your say your you know, core teams sometimes you need to make adjustments to to uh, the, the kind of the external teams but uh, overall it's really about constantly trying to balance things out and i don't i don't think that 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 you can land with a with a team that is stable i like that there you have to allow for some room for adjustments and uh originally when starting to go with this and uh, having a very tight tight uh, team that fit into one room here in helsinki uh it was somewhat a foreign idea when i got lots of lots of different um, inbound uh, requests about okay i have this you know great team available and blah 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 it's like okay i'm i'm not going, having any of that but once you hit that kind of a scaling threshold and a ceiling that where you can go with uh with that core team then uh, that actually became the kind of the uh, the alternative or the kind of the way that i i wanted to start doing things where you, you find a trusted partner or find a trusted team that you can on board as as your own, uh, even though they might be external and might be remote, and they probably are remote, uh, but uh, that actually does work. And and uh, going back, I might want to actually do that a little bit earlier to actually bring on board a trusted team that is is there as a as an integral part of the of, of the operation. Interesting. Have you looked at, um, for example, Basecamp is known for having this remote remote only type of approach to working or then uh, in, in in complete other direction the way Supercell for example has solved this team problem I uh, yes to some extent so obviously based here I, I know a fair bit about uh, Supercell uh, 
and base base camp has been of course in the news quite a lot lately yeah. and dhh has been a vocal vocal guy and i i followed some of his uh, writings and uh, and uh, the way that base camp develops software uh, and both of them probably have their own own kind of uh, reasons and why it works for them in that context so something like supercell they have their time horizons are maybe in the you know couple of years of yes, developing something sure. new and uh, and so forth, and, uh, and uh, they have plenty of money in the bank, so they can afford that kind of thing. That they have a team working on something for two years, and then it doesn't launch, uh, and they they perfect that that art. Uh, whereas then maybe something like uh, like uh, Basecamp, mostly operating on the web, purely digital products. Uh, they also can sort of run at their own own clock cycle, pretty much. I think when it comes to something like Wim, uh, the situation is somewhere in between. So whereas you have you have maybe very strong product vision, what you want to do, what the business is, etc. And uh, so there you have to have like a, a, a kind of a core of the of the team that really understands that what the vision is and what's in what's in scope, what is not in scope, and then then build these uh, um, particular investment area teams that uh, that then are are getting a, a target what to do. So in that sense, maybe a little bit like uh, what Supercell is doing, but but with much more sort of uh, guidelines in terms of what is expected. Uh, so not completely self-organized organization, like like in the way of how you know, Bonner says that uh, how he is the least influential CEO. Uh, so you need in the operation like Wim, you do need a, a you know top-down guidance that okay, this is the kind of the playground. Uh, but then how you actually then organize the team, you know, where people are, how do you run the meetings, etc. That should be up to the team to decide how they how they work most most yeah. effectively. So I guess you know Wim is somewhere in between these two models. Great. Thank you for your insights and thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. That was it. You might now feel a sudden urge to do something similar. Here is how to get started. Read our blog post Kickstarting your startup with serverless by Severi Haverila or download our DevOps for Executives guide. Either way, you won't go wrong. You can find links to both of them in the show notes. It's time to say until next time. Take care of yourself and keep building a strong product vision and great teams. Mm-hmm.